Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hello, Russ. Doing good. How are you? It looks like I caught you off guard there. A a little bit, but but we're good now. I'm recording. (laughs) (laughs) You you started your countdown and I was like searching, frantically searching for the record button, but we're good. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I have to remember to put more space between the three, two, one and the actual start of the recording because my editor, you know, I know is like sitting there trying to go three, two, one. Right there, right there. That one millisecond, like, that's really bad. (laughs) There ought to be more space in there. So, and today we have Yvonne with us, even though we can't see her right now. But we know she's in her she shed. We know where she is. I'm eating my food and I've got my camera off so they don't have to watch me eat because it's been that kind of a day. Her curds and whey. Something like that. Watch out for the spiders. Shrimp and rice. Yeah. (laughs) Watch out for the spiders. (laughs) No spiders were harmed in the making of this. <laughs> that you know of. Unless you consider shrimp spiders. I mean, that's another entire problem. I don't, I don't think they would be classified that way. <laughs> As arachnids. Okay, so today is a roundtable. So we are going to just hang out and talk about stories that are in the news. Some which confuse me. Some which I have an opinion on. And some of which I just, I really don't know what to think about some of these things. Um. So let's see, let's start with this. So the EFF has a thing up today talking about how a court, the Ninth Circuit Court, which is, by the way, for those who don't live in the U.S., the Ninth is the most reversed circuit court in U.S. history. That's not, that's just a fact. That's that's not, you know, trying to be political or anything. That's just the way it works. So when you hear something come out of the Ninth, you always have to wonder, is that going to be reversed? Because they are the most reversed court in the U.S., but anyway, um, that the that the Ninth Circuit has allowed a suit to go forward against Cisco Systems for aiding and abetting the creation of human rights violating computer systems, specifically the Great Firewall of China. And. I kind of get where they're coming from. I kind of get where the people suing are coming from. But it it worries me a little bit because, or a lot actually, because once you start holding people liable, I guess it would depend too on how far it went. For instance, if I just sold you, if I just sold you a car and you used it to run somebody over, the car manufacturer is not responsible. That's outside the scope of what they designed the product to do. They didn't teach you how to do that. They didn't put the murderous intentions in your head. So I guess there's a part of me that says, well, Cisco just sold the equipment. When I was working in global escalation at Cisco, we always used to say, we just sell the rope. I mean, you can make whatever you want to out of the rope. Um, Bad things are good things. I guess it would also depend on like how deeply Cisco employees were involved in actually aiding the configuration and helping the design of this thing that people consider to be violating human rights. And I don't know the answer to that, but I just think this is an interesting case that we need to watch carefully and understand 
because whether we agree with it or not, whatever, wherever it goes from an agreement or whatever perspective, this is going to have a major impact on IT. Like if you can press this case against Cisco, then you should be able to press this case against almost anybody. It feels well, like I don't, to me. I don't, I don't know about that. There's a quote in the, in the article that to me, I don't know the facts of it. I just know what the article is saying, but it says the court said plaintiffs allege that Cisco designed, developed, and optimized important aspects of the Golden Shield surveillance system and that it and it manufactured hardware for the Golden Shield in California. And so that to me, like it's one thing to build a product and give up, sell a product to somebody and say, you're on your own, do whatever you want. It's a totally different thing to design a network using those components to develop and optimize it. Like to me, that that's if they're if they're involved, yeah. yeah. If you if they're actually if they're providing the components, to me that's different than they're building a whole system out of the components. Well, I guess it also depends, right? On when you say they provided the components, did they provide a generic component that could have been used for many different things? Or sure. did, right? Or did they design something specifically to do this kind of filtering that was unable to be done before and has no other commercial purpose? Right. That's really, and that's where things get a little bit like, mm -hmm. I don't know, what do you do with that, right? Could you right. bring suit against an open source organization, as an instance, for developing a new kind of filter that was asked for by a tyrannical re regime, and it was placed in the code at the behest of that regime, but it had other commercial purposes. So other people supported it. I don't know the answer to that. I just know that if this case goes forward, that's the kind of thing that's going to need to be teased out and understood for technology companies and for technologists to protect themselves, right? If you work for a consulting company and some tyrannical regime comes to you and says, design a firewall for me, like, where do you draw the line, right? How do you do that? And that's what, what I found so, like, surprising about this. or not kind of worrisome because I don't know the answer, Right. And it could be completely justified and it could be completely good to push forward. And they may already have all this stuff worked out, but I'm not seeing it at this point. And so I'm, I'm a little just like, this is just something we need to watch as technologists. These are legal things that impact us and we need to be careful and understand them. I don't know, Yvonne. Anything. Well, yeah, there, I mean, so th there have always been conversations around these kinds of topics, especially um, in aerospace engineering, you know, yeah. if, if, or um, metallurgy, you know, if, if you're making a something, you're inventing something that's going to go into a weapon system, right? The, not, you know, there's a, there's a moral conversation that you have to have with yourself. And then there's the legal conversation, yeah. um, that's, that, that goes beyond you and your organization. So I don't, I don't know that this is completely new, but I think as our technology evolves and gets more advanced, um, it, we, we're in for a couple decades of, uh, litigation around these issues. I think, you know, and, um, and because everybody's talking about AI and it's all over my world right now, yeah. you know, like, you know, some organizations have policies where they like, we will not sell our facial recognition technology to law enforcement or 
um, to be used in military installations but for any number of reasons, either because we know that AI systems hallucinate and aren't accurate enough, or we know that there's bias built into the system and, and we're concerned about how that'll be used. I think for me, what's more interesting is that is, is this particular use case um, because the, that system, you know, the, the Great Firewall of China has been around for years and years and years and years. Um, and so it's interesting now to see this finally make its way to the courts, which, which may be some indication of how long it will take for you know, these other use cases to make their way through yeah. um, the court system to figure out um, you know, how this, this meets itself out in, in the public sphere and, and in legislation. It's, it's, they are very sticky issues that are beyond my uh, skill and competency to try and unpack, frankly. Um, yeah. yeah, it says, the article says that the case was first filed in 2011. So yeah, that's, so that's it's, quite a long road. Yeah, it's 12 yeah. years so far, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, 11, 12 years now. Yeah, so I just think it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. It's always been in the aerospace industry and other places, right? But now it's making its way into the computing industry. And I would have expected this more with AI or with search or, I don't know, with something more ephemeral, more software oriented. This feels very hardware to me. And that's what is kind of weird to me about it to some degree is like, this is the first time I've seen this type of thing go against you made, you made an actual appliance and we're suing you for making that appliance because it was used to harm people. And that's, and I, that's, and I wonder if, you know, is it that, you know, we, we have, we have no legal mechanism within the United States court system to target the Chinese government. No. Right. So, so, no. so we're going to target, um, something else to try and impact change. Um, and I, I, these are just really sticky issues and conversations yeah. and there's tons of nuance. And at, at what point does your making a thing make you complicit in how that thing is used? Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and we see that and goodness knows I'm not going to have this conversation, but, but, you know, in gun control, right. It's still a, it's, it's, it's a question that's plaguing our society on, on that issue. But I really think that's, that's what we're, it's the same conversation, just in a, in a, in a different application. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, like you said, it's also partially, okay, I can't get to the Chinese government, so I'm going to sue somebody with big pockets and maybe convince people not to help them build stuff anymore. Whether or not that's effective in the long run at stopping this from happening is another entire question. It's, you know, very, it's a, it's a question riddled with all sorts of problems. And I again, thought the Go ahead. Sorry, I thought the 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 section about purpose versus knowledge. I thought that was mm -hmm. really interesting. Um, that the court is holding that they don't have to have a shared purpose with the uh, you know perpetrator of human rights violations. All they have to have is knowledge. The fact that they even knew that something was going on makes them liable. Um, that's that's really interesting to me. I because it it makes sense if if they shared a purpose, then obviously, I mean that's 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 a that's a pretty high standard, you know. But it, but in this ruling, they're saying no, you don't actually have to share purpose. You just have to have knowledge. Um, that's that's really that's a different standard. Yeah, it is. It is, and that's you know this whole thing about we note that we would likely reach the same conclusion were we to apply the apply the purpose mens rea. 
In other words, you know, they wouldn't have gotten the contract if they wouldn't have done this. And they knew what it was going to be used for, even though that, that wasn't explicitly noted in the contract. They yet they knew that this is likely what the purpose was going to be. And so, yeah, that's that's a very interesting standard. And again, it, it, it's... I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying this is something we need to watch. This is like something, this is interesting. And this is something as technologists that we need to keep our eyes on. And not, But this and, is, I, I think it's important to call out though, this is against a corporation. Yes. Other, that, other than, I think there was a note in here about um, the executives. Wasn't there mm -hmm. something about executives could be sued under a, a similar sort of standard? Anyway, like it's not like they're going after product um, product owners inside of Cisco or, or product right. managers or something, but yeah. But I mean, if you were working as an independent consultant or working for a consulting company, right. Rather than a, and even working for a big company, you know, you don't necessarily want to open your company to these kinds of lawsuits oh, sure. by ma sure. by making decisions that, you know, um, even right. if, even if, even if you see your corporate leadership making this kind of decision, then maybe you ought to open your mouth and say, you know, there was this case over here with Cisco. Have right. You have you really spent the time doing some legal? Because in the long run, it still impacts my life. If my company gets sued for $20 million and loses, you know, it's still a, still a net negative. So well, and it's, it's important to note, too, from this article, that, that they've agreed to allow the suit to go forward, but right. there has not been a final judgment. Yeah, you know, they they've have not, not provided right. provided evidence yet in court, and there's, you know, no, there's no finding of fault yet, just that the court is saying this has enough merit to move forward, um, which, of course, for a company like Cisco, it still means that there are legal fees, and there's... Uh, energy discovery. that they've got to got got to yeah. you know expend to deal with this, which for some organizations the threat of that is is enough of a disincentive, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, to to go forward with these kinds of things in the future. But um, yeah, there's there's not been any finding yet, just that this can go forward. Yeah. Well, and going forward also means discovery, which means right. exposing right. proprietary information, email, Slack messages whatever, WebEx teams, it doesn't matter. All the internal communications that relate to this are now going to be exposed. And so that could potentially end up in the public purview, which is a bad thing, right, for the company. So there's, you know, there's all of that. So I, don't know, I just thought it was interesting. Um, I think it's one of those things worth keeping your eyes on and trying to figure out, like, trying to understand what's going on legally there, because I think it will have an impact on the tech industry in the long run. Because if this suit does end up succeeding, then you can be certain that there will be follow-ups. There will be other companies that will be sued and, you know, on the same grounds because precedent is precedent and you just never know where that goes. So the second one was one contributed by Tom this week, which is um, Amazon Sidewalk could be a big boon to business. So talk to me about Sidewalk. I mean... I'm going to, I'm going to always come out with the thing about that. This worries me. <laughs> yeah. It worries me too. I, so I, I, I definitely don't agree with the premise of, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe it could be a big boon to business, but not that it should be. So for anyone who hasn't kept up with it, Amazon sidewalk is not necessarily new. I think in a few months ago, uh, we started learning the details of how it works, but basically in a nutshell, Amazon sidewalk is if you buy, um, uh, an Amazon device an Alexa or a ring, uh, device, 
um, by default, you are opted in to participating in Amazon Sidewalk, which basically says you, you're saying to Amazon, you can use up to 500 megabytes of your home's network connectivity every month. And they're building an overlay on top of your Amazon devices. And then they're offering um, to, to create a very large pervasive network, um, which, and the details of it, I thought were really interesting how it works, but but basically to make it so that um, IoT devices can attach uh, and get connectivity for free. So if you have these devices in your home, that means that you are now a trans uh, a transit provider for the for the Amazon uh, Sidewalk network, and uh, you're welcome. Now you're allowing them to, um, you know, enable other businesses, and and uh, their overlay just flows over your network. And uh, that's uh, I don't like it, but it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that they're not using Z-Wave or Bluetooth. They are using an LP WAN which apparently is not standardized any place that I can see. Um, it says it uses several wireless technologies, including BLE and LoRa, and frequency shift keying via 900 megahertz. And it's not just the bandwidth they're taking, they're also using frequency shift keying, um, uh, frequency shift modulated spread spectrum frequency around the 900 megahertz range, to transmit stuff, which means they're consuming at least a little bit of the available airspace, the, right. the radio stuff in the in the airspace, which could interfere with other devices. I mean, 900 megahertz is a bit below what a microwave oven is. A microwave ovens usually run about 1.2 gig, so you wouldn't see much there. But there are other things that run around that range that could you could see interference from this in some different ways. Although it's spread spectrum, but it shouldn't be that bad. But nonetheless, I mean. These are all things, you know, that like, you're right, it's kind of strange. It's like, okay, so I buy an Alexa device and now I am a transit node for anybody driving through my neighborhood or my next door neighbor's ring or whatever it is. Like, and not only am I a transit node for Amazon devices, I'm a transit node for businesses who want to build a business based on the network. So basically... I buy the device for X amount of money. Amazon consumes up to 500 meg of my data, builds a network that they then sell to somebody. This often, this this sounds awfully close to something like eminent domain. Like I'm going to build, <laughs> I'm going to build a bicycle path through every front yard of everybody in the city, and I'm going to charge people to use it. Like wait a minute, wait a minute. It's my front yard. Like, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time making that front yard look nice. And now you're putting a bike path through it and you're not even going to give me the money from it. I'm going to buy from you a bicycle that allows you to do this. And then you're going to, other people are going to pay you to use it. So not only am I paying to use my own property, I'm allowing you to let other people use my pay, my property for your use and you're going to get paid for it. Wait a minute, something about this whole thing sounds really bizarre. <laughs> the, one of the questions I have about it, I think it will be interesting to see how it plays out, is how um, when somebody inevitably does something evil um, with one of these devices and law enforcement comes along and needs to investigate, who in the world do they even talk to? Like there's like they go to the, they go to the the service provider and issue a CALIA request and the service provider's like, sure, here you go. It's all encrypted. I don't have any idea what that crap is. And then what are they going to do? Are they going to are they going to go now issue a subpoena to the homeowner if they somehow figure out that that it was the this you know grandma's Alexa that was transit for this unlawful activity? Like and then like how does 
I don't know, all of that, like the whole downstream liability and all that stuff that goes with creating a network and serving people on it, like, um, yeah. seems really fraught to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, this the stage has kind of been set for this with 5G and, and micro and small antennas, because the way the law works right now with 5G is, is if you want 5G fixed wireless access to your home, you allow the provider to come buy, to, to come put an antenna on your home. And that antenna is theirs, and you cannot remove it or touch it at all, even if you discontinue the service. Because there could be downstream customers from you relying on that, and right. you have to provide the antenna with power, you know, and et cetera. And so this, this, this kind of thing has already been set the stage for in the 5G market. And I kind of worry that we're starting to get to the point in tech where we're like, I'm doing this good thing, and I really don't care about property rights, and I really don't care about privacy. What I really care about is getting this good thing done. Um, and and we're, we're really, I don't know, I think, I think we're getting closer and closer to that every month, it feels like to me. And that kind of worries me. Well, and I think the other, um, the other challenge that we face, and, and this really applies to kind of our last story as well, but... When you start talking about the intersection of technology and public policy, very few of our public policymakers can grasp the technology enough to know what a sane policy looks like, yep. right? And 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 maybe when there are instances, you know, where where you do need some sort of an eminent domain, right? I mean, we have those. You know, I think we can all agree that like pots lines to every house in the country was a good thing, yeah. you know, and yeah. the, the property was required to make that happen, right? Yep. Public That's utilities right. and those mm -hmm. sorts of things. And at least where, where I am, there's a huge growth in um, fiber connectivity. I now have fiber. You know, when I moved here 12 years ago, I had a terrible one, one and a half meg down and 384 meg up DSL connection. Right. And so th th those things are important and valuable and they help our economy and they, um, you know, level a playing field for education and all kinds of things. At, at the same time, like that's not what this is. Right. This is a consumer device yep. that is that is sold to do one thing that actually does another thing. And it is not clear to the end user that that's what they're signing on for. I mean, yes, it's buried in the EULA that you have to click yes on to make the thing work. Um, but, but most consumers can't parse it. So, you know, I think this is another area where, um, I, you know, I, I'm pretty, pretty bearish that this is ever going to stop and that there'll ever be anything to control it. Right. I think this is something that your big, um, big corporations are going to do and they're going to do it for a long, long time. Um, and, and if you want to play, you have to accept some of it or, um, or, or, you know, you invest in some sort of boutique technology that's more expensive and maybe less, uh, less feature rich and you do something else, but yeah. that's not at the same time, like if this integrates with your phone, it's not like you can completely opt out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think part of what you said there is, is. Uh, that we are now getting to the point where, where technology, the convenience is actually starting to impinge in real ways on 
privacy and other things. It always has, but it's always been kind of a distant thing. Like I could, oh, I could just not use Facebook, right? I could just not use Google search. I can just not use whatever it is I don't want to use. Now we're getting to the point where, no, if you, if you want to live a life, you need a cell phone. And if you have a cell phone, you know, you're going to have Alexa, Siri, something. There's going to be something on it. And that something is going to impinge on your privacy. And it's almost getting to the point where to live a real life now, you have to like. And and there's, it feels like we're crossing a bit of a line here. But I think you're right, Yvonne. I don't think we're going back. I th don't think we're going to go any, do anything about it. Um, it's just kind of a, a, a weird, it almost feels like it's happening in the background and nobody's paying attention. I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't think it's almost like that. I think that is exactly what it is. <laughs> I don't think there's anything almost about it, right? Um, yeah. yeah. But it is worth mentioning, um, if you want to, you can opt out, like at least for now. Yeah, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, crap, I have like a half dozen of these things, you can go opt out. You just have to figure out how to do it. Um, it is right now. At least you can. Yeah. Yeah, and you, and you should. I mean, the problem is, is it's really great for us tech people because we know what we're looking for. We know the questions to ask yeah. for people who aren't tech. Like you try to explain how to use a password manager to these people and they're lost. Like, why would I ever want to do that? My passwords are secure. I use different numbers on the end of every every website I go to. <laughs> the password for every website I go to, based on my birthday or you know the first date I went to that site or something about the URL or something. You're like, that's not secure. Stop that. And they just don't. You know, they don't understand like the hardness of what's going on here, and and that you actually need to go dig and search. And we don't live unfortunately in the kind of curious society that we did a hundred years ago where people would go find things we believe whatever we're told and whatever it's it's well and i and i think it's also but there's so many targets for our curiosity right yeah, it's not it's true. it's like you know you you could be curious about hummingbirds or you could be curious about woodworking or you know i mean everybody can't be curious about everything yeah, and yeah. i think that's you know that that's the challenge too like you know we care about technologies but i'm i'm sure that there are other industries with like the automotive like you know you got your car mechanics and they're like all oh, these cars they do all these things and they shouldn't do them or whatever you know, like it's it's just the domain of potential knowledge is so big. Yeah. Everybody can't be up on, on all of it. It's it's physically, humanly impossible. Yeah. I have been in the serious thinking phase of abandoning my newer cars or my newer car, one of my newer cars and buying an older car just because I'm just tired of all the, like, it's nice having the GPS in the car, but you know what? You can buy it. There are a certain number of older cars you can buy that they sell GPS systems for. And you don't have all the electronics in the engine and the brakes and everything else. It's like it's a much simpler vehicle. And I've thought seriously about that for like the last six months. But, He's justifying know. his desire for a classic car. <laughs> <laughs> you could just buy it, Russ. You don't yeah, need yeah, thanks. You don't have this complicated reason. Just go get one. <laughs> wow. Uh, you have known fun. me for too long. <laughs> Okay, so then the third one kind of runs along the same right line, which is HCA just lost 11 million records. If anybody doesn't know HCA, it's Hospital Corporation of America. Yvonne, you might know that market better than I do. Is this a regional? Is that who this is? 
you know, a health uh, HA is the largest uh, for-profit healthcare system in the United States. So okay. they're they're big. Yeah, they're big. And, and are they regional? or Are they in the entire U.S.? Like they have yeah, they're across over. the whole U.S. Yeah, okay. they're 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 based in Nashville, but they are they are all over the place. Yeah. And I, I don't know. You know, I'm always doing this. I sit I sit while I'm eating lunch or whatever, and I read RSS feeds, and I'm always going another 11 million records. Like every every th- two to three days, there's one of these breaches. And. I, I don't even think there used to be websites to keep track of them. I don't even think there's websites to keep track of them anymore because there's just so many and they're so big. Used to be people freaked out. Oh, 100,000 records were lost. No, this is 11 million patient records. Like, wait. <laughs> and this is not even like, apparently, it says names, um, Date of birth, gender, patient service data. That's the one that really bothers me. Patient service data. What is that? What does that include? Clinical information has not been believed to be part of the breach. Patient service data. I don't know. I just, again, this is never going to stop. For anybody who thinks that we're going to stop these breaches, you're crazy. That's my opinion. This is just an accelerating trend, and this is the way it's always going to be. Well, and and speaking generally, you know, um, in 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 this article that that we're seeing, it says that um, the, the breach took place via a third party system. Yeah. And even even if an organization has um, very strong policies in place and a very strong security posture. I think it is impossible anymore for a, a large company, certainly the size of HCA, but really anybody in the Fortune 500, to operate and maintain and have complete control of all their data all the time. I, I think it is, it's it's financially unfeasible, and 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 so, like your data is going to be in other places, whether it's in a SaaS system like Salesforce or whether it is in, you know, any, any kind of SaaS system. Um, and, and so the, the challenge is, you know, you think about specifically in, in this case, like none of HCA systems were, were compromised. It was yeah. a third party vendor third that, party. that had that information. That's, yeah. that's not revealed in the article. Don't, don't know anything about who that was. But it's it's an incredibly difficult problem, especially as we're trying to do more and more with data in a good way, right? Like that data can be used to improve patient outcomes, but you actually have to have the data to do the interesting stuff with it to, to make those changes. Um, and um, I, th- I think you're right in that. I think we can continue to incrementally make improvements in how we manage data and and encryption and, and those kinds of systems and and limiting the scope of access and and all of that i mean but i i just don't think we can prevent it completely no. I, I think it's just our organizations operate in two they're meshy you know mm-hmm. like you just don't have everything you know even if you could keep it all in your data center you're gonna have a hard time keeping it safe. Yeah. Um, but when you're when you're working with third parties, you know, I mean, I'm 
that sometimes your best bet is to have contractual obligations that sort of provide some financial protections, but that doesn't do anything to protect the actual breach of the data. Yeah. And, and I think what's, what, what often occurs to me when I see this kind of thing is maybe we're starting to build things that are just too big, like companies, like a sidewalk, this whole sidewalk labs thing, everything like that. Maybe things are just getting too big and too centralized. Maybe this is just a, this is just a symptom of, you know, it's, it's one thing to have a local hospital breached. It's another thing to have a, a, a hospital, a chain that owns 20 hospitals or a hundred hospitals breached. And, and I know there's efficiencies of scale sometimes, but there's also increase, you risk increase as well as you scale. And oftentimes we don't think about the risk increase. We just think about the economies of scale and not the risk of scale. And I don't know. There, there's something to be said for small. And I'm not sure we're saying it. <laughs> I'm not sure we as a, as a culture or society have gotten to the point where we realize, you know, the local farmer, buying from the local farmer has some advantages. Hard to believe sometimes, but it does. <laughs> The um, comment about risk I, the, um, in the article that sometimes leader business leaders um, they they um, see engaging with third party systems like this as a way to reduce costs, but they don't actually think that uh, critically about the in- increased risk. And, and to me, that just goes back to um, like you always say, Russ. There's always a trade off. If you haven't found yeah. it, you haven't looked hard enough. And so I think when business leaders say, "Oh, we're going to have someone else handle this. It'll be great. It'll be so good. It'll save us so much. Done deal." Like, well, you gave up something for that. Um, yeah. You don't just get it for free. It's not you know you're not some sort of genius because you outsource stuff. Like there there was something you gave up in that transaction, and you know it's I think it's important to be aware of that. Sadly, a lot of people think outsourcing actually outsources risk. I mean, that's an intentional point that people use. I'm going to outsource the risk by outsourcing this particular piece of processing. Yeah. It's not as easy to outsource risk as you think it is. Like, you know, the contract is great, but if the breach happens, the breach has already happened. The damage to your brand, nobody who was buying your product before is going to care that it wasn't your fault that their medical history showed up on the internet in a data dump. They just really don't care whose fault it was. You are the front end. You are the person they're dealing with. And so that's something we don't often think about. But yeah, I don't know. Yvonne looks like she has something else to say there. Well, I I don't, I mean, I, I, I've been in the healthcare industry for a, for a long time. And so I, you know, I th- th- this is kind of an issue near and dear to my heart. And I also understand how complex and complicated it is and i also kind of have seen like healthcare is a very heavily regulated industry Mm -hmm. and does not innovate as quickly as it otherwise could because of for several factors one because of just the nature of the work they do but also because of how heavily regulated it is um, and, and so I have a, have a ton of like empathy for this situation because I, you know, the, even as much due diligence as you do of your third parties, um, and, and when you're as big as this, like, I, I, I just don't see how you, how you keep these kinds of things from happening yeah. in, in a world where, uh, threat actors don't play by the same rules as the rest of us do. 
Right. And and so I I do think to a degree some of these things are, are going to happen. I, I know when, when Russ brought this article up before we started recording, I mentioned the anthem breach from years ago. I mean, yeah. at, at this point, yes, it's horrible. Yes, we need to try and prevent it. At the same time, do I think that there's any information about me to breach that probably hasn't always already been breached? I don't know. Probably not. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to be fatalistic about it, but at the same time, like, I, I just, like, this one, I don't have great answers for, yeah. honestly. Well, I don't think there's any great answers for any of these three. I just think they're worthwhile things to think about, like, as IT people. Like, what do we think about them personally? What can we do locally? Uh, what can we do to help our companies and our coworkers and the people we know deal with this better? Um, and I do think we have developed a fatalism around uh, around privacy in particular that, you know, the whole thing of, well, if I've done nothing wrong, then I have nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, no, that's that's never been true. And it's not true right now, particularly not true right now. It's totally untrue right now. Um, you never know how people are going to take what you say any longer. And you never know how people are going to use something they discover about you. It's completely open market, open, open right now. And I just don't. Anyway, so I don't know. I mean, I'm with you, Yvonne. It's hard. It's complex. I just don't. Maybe maybe the problem is more structural than it is something that you can do something about by being more careful. I don't know. Don't have any good answers. Just think that we need to be aware and to think as network folk, try to figure out better how to do this. So I got nothing else. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Tom? Nope. No, you're out. I'm just amazed. (laughs) I've run dry. (laughs) You've run dry. And Yvonne? Nope. All good. All right. Cool. All right. Well, Tom, where can people find you? Get in touch or whatever if they want to. Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for Tom Ammon. Okay. And Yvonne? Yeah. uh, On Twitter at Sharp Network. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Cool. I see your construction is going okay. Yeah, yeah, still building the house, like the house. a couple months away. Like every good. day is a new finishing touch, so we're enjoying it. Oh, nice. good, awesome, great. All right, I'm Russ White. You can find me here at the Hedge. You can find me at rule11.tech on LinkedIn, Twitter. I log into every now and again now for various reasons. And, um, you know, reach out if you have ideas for the show. Thanks for listening. We know that attention, as Yvonne just said, we live in an information-rich environment. And we're happy that you spent choose to spend some of your time learning about networking with us. So thanks again for listening, and uh, we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.